favorite archaeological misfit, Jenny. And I'm here for episode 7 of the Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty. I'm totally excited. I'm totes excited about this episode, you guys. Uh, because we're talking about a subject which will probably be near and dear to many of your hearts, as it is the gateway drug to all history or archaeology lovers. Uh, it is the history of ancient Egypt. That's right. Everyone, or at least most of the people that I know in the fields of history or archaeology, started off with a healthy interest in that big, fancy empire down by the Nile, and, uh, and I am included in that group. I, I will admit it. While it was not my very first historical obsession, I do have to say I started out, uh, I started out pretty heavy uh, into the Civil War. Um, you know, it was a period in my life where I was young and uh, I was searching for answers. So we started there and, um, you know, things got worse uh, when I went to college. You know, I had some friends who maybe weren't the right group of people and they got me into Egypt. Um, and it's still hard for me to talk about. Uh, but, you know, I started reading on my own um, histories and non-fictions, and then I started watching TV specials. And then, this is, this is so terrible, I started taking notebooks full of notes on anything I could find having to do with Egypt. <laughs> I had an entire notebook devoted to hieroglyphs, and I learned how to write my name and all this stuff, and I memorized the alphabet. Oh god, it was... <sighs> okay. But you know what? I've, I've moved on since then, and I've become a better person. I'm not going to tell you I don't slip up now and then, and go back to Egypt. Uh, I do. But uh, I've really cleaned my life up, you know? Now I, uh, I actually study the academic discipline of anthropology. And now I know how to study my Egyptian obsession uh, safely and responsibly. So, anyway, I'm glad that I went through that experience. Uh, not only did I learn a lot about myself, but I learned a lot about um, Egypt. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so, I was like, oh, I could talk about Egypt all episode, ha 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 ha. So, I thought maybe instead of just going over a traditional history of Egypt, because I feel like listeners to this show, who I'm hoping are already into history or archaeology, probably have, I don't know, watched a History Channel special or two, or a National Geographic uh, about ancient Egypt and sort of, you know, know the basics of Egyptian history. Not like anything having to do with ancient aliens or anything, I mean like like real history. So I'm going to kind of skip a lot of that and we're going to talk about some of the sort of things that you don't always hear about in uh, Egyptian studies, maybe some like lesser known stuff. So let's get started. What, hmm, what, what do I want to talk about first? I'm missing, oh my goodness, I have to look at my notebook here. My old notebooks from uh, my Egypt obsession days are kind of OCD. I like used to make notebooks full of notes and then I'd reorganize the notebooks when I didn't like the way I'd done it the first time. 
Like, I tried to make a map of the Egyptian pantheon of gods, and I really didn't like the way that I drew it out, or I had these two mixed up or something, and I had to, like, redo my entire notebook. It's very OCD. My roommates used to make fun of me for it. But uh, I've also noticed going through them this week for this episode that they're also extremely like ADD because I would have a notebook that's supposed to be about Egypt or I don't know I went through a couple of phases um, ancient civilizations or medieval history or uh, whatever and then inside of it there's all these little sidebars of like notes I just randomly wanted to take about something odd like um, I don't know uh, ancient secret societies <laughs> like my Egypt notebook has an entire section on the Freemasons the Rosicutians uh, Gnosticism, like, I mean, Hermeticism, like, I, there's nothing to do, basically, with anything. I don't know. I guess I got inspired, or maybe the TV came on and I was like, oh shoot, gotta take notes on this. And so that's, that's why all my notebooks are kind of laid out. It's, it's random, but it's really interesting looking back on them, and funny, uh, because there's just no train of thought whatsoever to most of them. So let's see here, what's going to win first prize in the Overlooked Tidbits of Egyptian History category? Uh, ding ding, I think we have a winner in, uh, Obscure Women Rulers of Egypt. So, let's talk about it for a sec. Uh, think about it, anyone who is familiar with Egyptian history, and, uh, let me, let me know, who are the women rulers of Egypt that you can think of in your mind? The first one that probably comes to mind is either... Uh, it's probably a tie between, for most people, between Cleopatra, Nefertiti, and Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut being maybe the more obscure of those two, but she actually was the most powerful woman ruler in Egypt. And so she's a really interesting broad. Nefertiti was not actually a pharaoh, but she was very powerful. Well, there, okay, well, there is a portion of people who do believe that she was ruling Egypt, for several years after her husband Akhenaten's death, but was actually, like, there's this uh, sort of shadowy pharaoh figure called Smenkakare, who uh, was ruling briefly before King Tut came over, or came to the throne, and they think, they thought, you know, okay, maybe he was an older brother, or maybe he was one of Akhenaten's brothers or something, and so, but they don't really have any evidence that, <laughs> of his real existence. So a lot of people think that that was actually Nefertiti ruling as regent for King Tut, but that, she, you know, they, she had sort of covered it up by coming up with this character, Smenkakare, who she claimed was leading at the time, but in fact it was actually her. So that one's up for debate. But anyway, let's go back to the beginning, and I think you'll actually be surprised to learn just how many female rulers there were in Egypt. And when I say ruler, it's kind of a tricky thing because in Egypt, and this is a practice that actually was, it was practiced elsewhere in the world, but I don't think it was ever quite as common as it was in the Egyptian empire. When a pharaoh died and his, his heir, the son, was too young to really be an effective leader, a lot of the times the boy's mother would serve as what they called a co-regent. So, basically, the, the little heir would be the king, he'd be the pharaoh, but since he's so young, his mother would actually kind of be in charge for him, so she would rule in his stead until he was old enough to take over power and make decisions like a big boy. So, 
We see this happening either with the mothers of pharaohs when they're too young to rule after their uh, father dies, or we see it with the wives of pharaohs sometimes after their husband's deaths when there's not there's a period of transition or confusion and there is no other clear male ruler. So this isn't, uh, it's usually the case, and it starts off very early in Egyptian history, actually. The very first woman ruler was a woman from the very first dynasty named Merneith. And some of these names are, you know, I'm going to say the popular version, but there's different people still are battling over how different names were pronounced or different aspects of them because hieroglyphs are challenging to interpret sometimes. Um, they aren't usually written with vowels, so there are uh, there can be different pronunciations for the same word in Egyptian based on the vowels that we have to make up. <laughs> so I'm just going to do the best I can with them. So Merneith was a ruler of the first dynasty, and her rule was probably around 2975 BCE, and uh, she was a regent for her son, and his name was Den. <laughs> her son Den. Uh, and so yeah, she was she was uh, ruling the roost. And I think I believe she was the wife of Den's father, who was the previous pharaoh, Jet or Dejet or something like that. So anyway, there's Merneith. Following uh, Merneith, there's a lot of male kings for a long time. There's these uh, old kingdom kings who built the pyramids and all of that stuff. And then we get to the sixth dynasty where we have a woman named uh, Nitocris or Nitocris, which is this. Uh, she rules between about 2148 and 2144, and she's a very interesting lady. She actually ruled after her king, or, or, okay, after the king, who was her husband, and also her brother, was killed. And this is very common also, of course, in Egyptian royal uh, lineage, for the sister to be married to her brother when he becomes king to keep the bloodline clean. Because Egyptian pharaohs, you know, it's funny, I explained this exact thing to my class just the other day. Uh... Egyptian pharaohs were thought to be gods, basically, and their families were sort of part of that godlike family. They had a special relationship with the gods, and so it wouldn't make any sense to them to um, bring in other people who were not related to them, uh, because that would corrupt the holiness, I guess you could call it, or godliness of their family bloodline. So that's why a lot of the times, not only in Egyptian history, but in royal history in general, a lot of royal uh, royals are married to each other in order to keep the bloodline pure, a la Harry Potter. <laughs> um, no mudbloods in the royal families of Egypt. So yeah, Nidocris, uh actually ruled after her, her husband slash brother was killed. And she became a very romantic legend in Egyptian history. Uh, and she seems like kind of a badass. So, okay, so she takes over rule. And then what apparently she did, or at least this was the legend says, is she invited hundreds of people to the palace. And all of these people were somehow connected with the conspiracy to kill her husband. And so she got them all in the palace and invited them to this large banquet. 
And once they were all in the banquet room, she somehow opened the floodgates of the Nile upon them, and they were all drowned in by the Nile in the palace <laughs> and uh, killed in revenge for the plotting and murdering of her husband, brother, the king. So that's pretty cool. Go, Nidacris. <laughs> uh, fancy lady. And then, let's see, we've got some other... Six, another Six Dynasty. Oh, this lady has, like, one of my favorite names in Egyptian pharaonic history. <laughs> Her, she was the wife of King Pepi I, and she was actually the regent for their son, King Pepi II, who was, I think, the longest reigning pharaoh in Egyptian history. Um, but her name was Ancasin Pepe. <laughs> Sorry, I just like that. Ancasin Pepe ruled around 2184. Okay. So, yeah. Nice name. So, we've got Aksen Pepe. In the 4th Dynasty, there was a woman apparently named Kentahas, or something like that. Around 2500, she was the daughter of Menkare, who was of the royal lineage of the 4th um, Dynasty, uh, Khafre and Khufu, the pyramid builders. So, he was uh, a son uh, there. And so she was the daughter of him and the wife of the next pharaoh, Shepsikaf. And so she was uh, queen for a little while there. There's a woman named uh, Nimahat-Heb in the Third Dynasty, who was the regent and mother of King Dozier. Uh, and he, of course, uh, very famously was the Third Dynasty king who started the Old Kingdom and who also had his vizier Imhotep build him the first pyramids. So, and Imhotep, of course, you will all know <laughs> as the lovable bad guy from the Mummy movies, who in the Mummy movies is in love with a beautiful Egyptian woman named Anka Sinamen, uh, who in Egyptian history, it turns out, was actually the wife of King Tutankhamun, King Tut himself. So even though the two were separated by a good uh, 1,500 years, apparently, uh, they were long-lost soulmates. So I'm glad that the Mummy movies could bring them together, finally. Anyway, uh, so yeah, there's a bunch of ladies. It's just, there's tons of them. There's Sobek Nefru. She's a pretty famous 12th Dynasty queen, which is uh, the 1760s and 1750s. There's Tuozret, who's a 19th century queen. She was the wife of Seti II. And she was also the last ruler of the 19th dynasty, right? We've got, unfortunately, this queen has a name that I'm not sure how to pronounce. Um, if I read it, it sounds like it's supposed to be pronounced Ashotep. <laughs> she, uh, I don't mean to laugh at you, Ashotep, but... Anyway, she was the regent and mother of Amos I, who was the first uh, pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, and uh, which started in 1550 BC. And he was a pretty important dude. He was the heir to the uh, family that expelled the Hyksos from Egypt and took rule back from them. Uh, Sequinenre, I believe, being his predecessor who was killed in battle. And then we've got Amos Nefertari from the 18th dynasty who came after Amos and was his wife. And then we've got some of our more famous ladies, you know, Hatshepsut, famous 18th dynasty pharaoh. 
She ruled between 1473 and 1458. She was the co-regent to her son, uh, Tuthmosis III. She actually reigned for 15 years because her husband, who was the pharaoh before, died, and Tuthmosis III was very young, so she had to rule for a while. And she actually ended up doing super amazing, awesome things. She, did a, she was very active with building projects across Egypt, so she had major building projects at Karnak and Luxor temples. She built a fantastic, super amazing funerary temple called Deir el-Bahri, um, which is where she was buried. And she's most famous for leading a bunch of, uh, a very famous expedition to the land of Punt, which is on the eastern coast of Africa, where she brought back all sorts of riches and exotic things. So Hatshepsut was uh, pretty cool. But, of course, her son, Tuthmosis III, didn't really think she was that cool because after he became ruler, he kind of erased her from Egyptian history and smashed all of her statues and wiped her name off of things and all of this stuff. So, unfortunately for her, not all of her statues, there's a bunch of them. If you go to the Met in New York, they have an entire room full of Hatshepsut statues. So, so that's cool. Uh, I also think it's funny, Hatshepsut was uh, rumored to have been in love <laughs> with a guy named Senenmut, who was like her top advisor, and uh, so apparently everyone, all the regular people of Egypt knew about this love affair, and so we actually have a piece of ancient graffiti written on the walls of, I think it's Deir al-Bakri, um, maybe somewhere near there. And someone actually, I think, drew a little graffiti drawing of Senenmut and uh, Hatshepsut doing the dirty deed. <laughs> Getting down, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's, I, th I don't know if it's the first example of ancient graffiti, but it's a pretty um, entertaining one at that. So you see that we have a long tradition of pretty cool, badass Egyptian ruler ladies. And then, of course, um, you know, we also have Nefertiti, the wife of the heretic king Akhenaten, who is one of my favorite pharaohs, just because he is so fascinating. Um, she was very involved in the rule during his period um, in the 18th dynasty, around 1336. And like I said, she may have even briefly ruled after his death. And we don't know for sure, um, but it is suspected that she's uh, King Tut's mother. It's possible there might be another woman who may have mothered him, and we are just not sure, but we know that whoever did mother him was the sister of Akhenaten. So knowing the tradition of the royals marrying full-blood sisters, it would make sense if Nefertiti had, you know, obviously was married to Akhenaten if she had uh, been Tut's mother. So that's a big old mystery. But yeah, so... And then, of course, finally, at the end of the Egyptian Empire, we comes that that little harlot, the Cleopatra lady. And I'm not going to talk about Cleopatra because she's pretty well known. If you want a, an interesting perspective on Cleopatra's reign, definitely check out the HBO series Rome. Anyone who is into ancient history, especially classical history, and in the second season, Egyptian history, should definitely check out Rome. Um, it's pretty ridiculously amazing. So it's a great series, and the entire second season, they actually play out the entire story of 
uh, Mark Antony's romance with Cleopatra, and the end of their rule in Egypt when uh, King Octavian comes to take uh, Alexandria for the Romans. So it's pretty awesome stuff. And Kevin McKidd is in, he's the star of the series. And even though he doesn't really get to use his really sexy Scottish accent in it, he's still pretty delicious. So check that one out. So I think that's going to do it for our Egyptian ladies portion of the episode. So I think we're going to move on to something else, which I think most of you will find extremely interesting, and if not interesting, at least extremely entertaining. So I was actually reminded of this the other day um, because I had this discussion with my class. I'm teaching anthropology to high schoolers right now, and uh, generally they don't know too much about a lot of ancient history and archaeology, things like that, but when you ask them what they do know, one of the things that generally comes up is people are familiar with the uh, archaeological discovery of the city of Troy and its relationship to the Homeric uh, epics like the Iliad. And we had this whole discussion on how, you know, they're trying to figure out if the Iliad is a true story or if it's, it's like the real history of Troy. And so we talked about how the, ar- the archaeology... Schliemann's discovery of Schliemann's discovery, sort of destruction, and then recovery of the city of uh, Hisserlik and or Troy has actually led to you know now over a hundred years of scholarship that has really let us flesh out the entire story of what the actual historic influence was for the writing of the Iliad. Obviously, the Iliad is not a history, it's fantasy, but it's based in part on the real place and some real people. So they thought it was just so interesting to see how we can take a story that we know is fiction, but that's based on reality and go to the archaeology and then actually use the archaeology to figure out what was real about the influence for that story. And so it inspired me to, to, I was thinking about this book that I had read a long time ago about, it's kind of the quest to find evidence in Egypt for the Old Testament, archaeologically. And this is kind of a topic, I don't know if a lot of people interested in archaeology really know that this type of stuff is like for real going on and there's actually, you know, serious academic people working on it, but there are. And I, I find it really fascinating. I remember reading this book, and it is, I have it right here. It's by a guy named Ahmed Osman. Uh, he, he's actually a pretty popular historic author. He has two other books, or had two other books at the time, called Moses and Akhenaten. So he's really into Egyptian history, right? He wrote this book called The Hebrew Pharaohs of Egypt, The Secret Lineage of the Patriarch Joseph. And being, uh, and when I bought this, probably on some sort of kick in biblical archaeology, I read it and I was like amazed at the evidence he seemed to collect to, <laughs> for his theory, and I'm not going to call it a crackpot theory, but it's a theory that, let's just put it, is not widely accepted by the academic community, okay? But he has a theory that the biblical patriarch Joseph was a real figure in Egyptian history 
who we actually have discovered the remains of and who actually fathered pharaohs in Egyptian or began a lineage of pharaohs in Egyptian history. So a lot of people have looked at the Old Testament and there is a there's a sort of a history of the Old Testament in Egypt throughout the period after Joseph comes to Egypt and then uh, he the, his, the Canaanites come to Egypt with Joseph's family and they stay there for about 430 years during which time they kind of become slaves and they're there until Moses leads them in the Exodus out of Egypt. And a lot of people have looked at this in the Old Testament and tried to place it in Egyptian history. And the timeline of when it, when it happens in ancient history is what has been up for debate for a long time. It's usually placed with Joseph arriving in Egypt around 1800 BCE because the only thing in the, in the Old Testament that really gives us an indication of when the Exodus happens is the mention of Ramses, which most people have taken to assume that the king in the Exodus, who Moses is escaping from, is Ramses II, because the word Ramses is in the Old Testament during that part of the story. So a lot of people place the Exodus around between 1279 and 1213, which was the reign of Ramses II. But Scholars are looking at it and looking at the Old Testament now and seeing that it isn't exactly cut and dry that Ramses II was the Exodus Pharaoh because the Old Testament actually doesn't mention Ramses as the Pharaoh by name. So people mistake that sometimes. What he does say is that the Israelites had settled in the land of Goshen in Egypt, which was in the Ramses region. And this, scholars think, is actually referring to the city of Pi-Ramses, which is one of the two cities, along with the city of Python, built, in theory, by the Exodus Jews, the Israelites who were in, e in Egypt before the Exodus. And so, because it says that they were living in the Ramses region, people assumed that this was during the reign of Ramses, but some people are saying it is not necessarily the case. And it's interesting because the city of Ramses was not actually named after Ramses II. It was actually built before the reign of Ramses I, who was his father and the first king of the 19th dynasty. So it was built before he took power during the reign of Horemheb, who was a general in the army under Tutankhamun, who basically after his death took control and became the ruler of Egypt, for a while before Ramses began. And a lot of people sort of tie Horemheb's name in history as this villain who's sort of tied into perhaps a plot to assassinate Tutankhamun and take power. So he's kind of this shady figure. But anyway, so the city was built and it was actually named after Ramses the I by Horemheb after it was built. So it had actually been built and called Ramses before Ramses II ever even took the throne. So yeah, it's hard to tell if it's being called the area of Ramses because this is where the city was at the time and everybody called it Ramses or whether this is just something like the city had been there before 
And then later on in history, everybody knew it as Ramses because that's what it had been called for a long time. And so that's when the Old Testament was written. That's what was recorded as the place where it happened because that's what they were calling it at the time. So we don't really know if the mention of the Ramses region can actually tie the Old Testament exodus to the reign of Ramses II. At least Mr. Osman says that it does not, in fact, do that. So let's talk about his theories for a second about how his uh, Hebrew kings came to rule Egypt. Okay, so, and what that has to do with the Old Testament. So basically the author is trying to kind of just rewrite the timeline here uh, based on what he sees as the evidence that supports his theory of Joseph coming to Egypt at a different point in time than was traditionally accepted. Now, a lot of people say because, only say that Joseph came to Egypt around 1800 because of the 430 years they believe the Old Testament states that the Israelites were in Egypt before the Exodus, which they had placed in around the reign of Ramses. Now, traditionally, some, uh, I guess people had thought that his reign had been in the 1400s, 1446, which is why they placed Joseph around 1800. But, of course, we know uh, that Ramses' reign was actually in the 1200s, so that would place the arrival of Joseph more around uh, 1600. Now, so Osmond says more apropos date for Joseph's arrival in Egypt for those who believe that Joseph and the Israelites were actually the Hyksos. Now the Hyksos were an Asiatic people who came to Lower Egypt and took control around 1650 during the Second Intermediate Period and ruled that half, the uh, upper, ha upper Egypt during that period. And they, because they were Asiatic, they were Semitic in ethnic origin. And so people had always thought, oh, well, Joseph's people were in Egypt for a while before they were expelled, and the Hyksos were in Egypt for a hundred years before they were expelled. So maybe those were the Israelites that we were talking about in the Bible. But Osman says that's not true either. He says his date for Joseph coming to Egypt is in the late 1400s. So... He places Joseph in Egypt sometime around between 1413 and 1400 BCE. And where he gets the dates for this is from the arrival of a figure in Egyptian history named Yuya. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this guy named Yuya that the author of the book is convinced to be the uh, historical Joseph from the Old Testament. Now, Yuya was a figure, he was basically a vizier to the pharaoh. And his tomb was discovered in the Valley of the Kings in 1905 by Theodore Davis, Arthur Weigel, and Gaston Maspero, who was a very famous Egyptologist. And he wasn't found alone, he was buried with his wife, Tuya. So, Yuya and Tuya were a very important family in Egyptian history. They kind of come out of nowhere as far as historical records are concerned. We know that Tuya is an Egyptian woman who may have actually been somehow related to the royal family during the uh, 18th dynasty, but Yuya we're not so sure about. So they pop up and it turns out that Yuya had been 
a trusted advisor to the pharaoh Tutmosis IV. And so, at some point, probably around the end of Tutmosis IV's reign, he was appointed vizier to the pharaoh. And so, he was vizier who served with Tutmosis's son, Amenhotep III, between 1405 and 1367. So even though he wasn't royal himself, he was married to a very prominent Egyptian woman, who we think may have been royal, and he was serving as vizier. So he was pretty important to the royal family. And he was so important, apparently, that him and his wife, Tuya's daughter, was married to the pharaoh Amenhotep III. She is a very famous queen in Egyptian history. Her name is Queen T, and she is very well known from New Kingdom history because she was a very powerful queen, and Amenhotep III, who was a very beloved pharaoh, actually, he was uh, probably, from what I know, one of the most beloved pharaohs by the Egyptian people in their history, and she was one of their most beloved queens. She was, uh, she was powerful as well, and Amenhotep apparently was very much in love with her. So he was so in love with her that he actually married her and made her his royal wife, which is basically saying, like, she's, she's the queen, even though he has other wives as well. Um, he was also married to his sister, as most good pharaohs are, but he did not make his sister his royal wife. He made Queen T his royal wife. So his sister sort of sit, sat on the back burner for a little bit, okay? And so, yeah, so Queen T was, she was the tits, I guess you could say it. So she was the daughter of Yu Yen Tuya, and Queen T and Amenhotep III gave birth. Well, <laughs> he didn't give birth, but you get the idea. They had a son, uh, Amenhotep IV, who you may know by another name, that rascally little uh, heretic king, Akhenaten, who, you know, thought, oh, we don't need all these Egyptian gods and goddesses. Why don't we just worship this one god? He's like the sun, and he's pretty awesome. So I'm just going to move the capital of Egypt to Amarna and worship the sun dude with my wife Nefertiti. And, uh... You know, we're just gonna surf on our little pleasure lake and worship the sun god. And, uh, yeah, so he did that, and everybody hated him, and then he disappeared mysteriously from history. And so that happened. But anyway, uh, Akhenaten was Queen T's son. So, you can see now how Yuya's ancestors did become the royal line, because... Uh, his daughter's son be was the pharaoh, and after Akhenaten, his son, King Tut, was the pharaoh as well. So, yeah, very influential on Egyptian history, right? So, what's the deal with this guy, Yuya, anyway? Why would this, you know, Osman guy think, oh yeah, well, he's obviously Joseph from the Old Testament. So, he says that there are many similarities between Yuya and this Joseph man. One of them has to do with the name Yuya and its relation to the Hebrew for Joseph, which apparently I guess he was called Yahweh uh, for a while, which is God's name, I think. But anyway, there's some connection there. It's 
it was kind of hard for me to understand, but something about the syllables and sounds and stuff like that in the Hebrew language that made Joseph in some, into something vaguely resembling Yuya for the Egyptians. Also, Yuya was the first person in Egyptian history to hold the title Master of the Horse and Deputy of uh, the Chariotry for the King. And we didn't see this previously in Egyptian history because uh, chariots and horses were not a very large part of the Egyptian military until after the Hyksos came to Egypt because they brought the chariots with them. And so that was in 1650, and when they left in 1550, that was when you very first really see horses and the chariot being a big part of Egyptian culture and especially military culture. So to have this person titled Master of the Horse is a big deal because that was Joseph's title. <laughs> you see? You see the, the similarities? Just start piling up, right? So they have the same title. They're both made vizier to the king even though they're not royal born and they're of, of some type of obscure birth. They're both given Egyptian wives. Because in the Old Testament, Joseph is given to wife a woman named Aseneth, who was uh, the daughter of a man named Potiphar. Now, Potiphar, an Egyptian, is not a person. Potiphar is a title. At this point in the 18th dynasty, the title of Potipharah means the priest of On. And we know from the Old Testament that Potiphar was a priest of On. So that's obviously where the name comes from, the title. And apparently in history we see that the name Potiphar being actually applied to a person as a nomen does not actually happen until the period of Akhenaten. So it is exactly this point in history, basically, give or take 10-20 years, where the name Potiphar is first being used to describe people and not titles. And that is what we see being used in the Old Testament story where Joseph's wife is the daughter of Potiphar. So there's another connection for you. Uh, there's some other things. There's something about in the Old Testament about Joseph being given uh, golden rings and a necklace by the Pharaoh. And while we don't have golden rings on the mummy of Yuya, we do have a golden necklace, and we do have an inscription on his tomb mentioning that he had been given a, a gold ring by the Pharaoh. So there's two other Old Testament references that do kind of match up with what we find with Yuya in the tomb. So, and then there's this third thing. Yuya uh, was mummified and buried in Egypt in the, the Valley of the Kings. and that's all great, well and good, but, um, okay, so archaeologists are used to seeing Egyptian mummies by this point when he's found, and so they've seen their fair share of Egyptian mummies. They're, you know, especially in this period, they're all kind of similar looking, a lot of them are related, and they find Yuya and Tuya, and they take the mummies out, and they look at Tuya, and she's an Egyptian woman, and they're like, oh yeah, okay, she's an Egyptian. They look at Yuya, and they're like, huh. He, uh, he doesn't look so Egyptian. He looks kind of Jewish. Yep. 
I recommend you go to my website and check out the pictures I'm going to post with this blog entry of Yuya and Tuya's mummies. They're very well preserved, and I think, I don't know, it seems fairly evident to me that Yuya is not Egyptian. <laughs> or at least he does not look like any other Egyptian mummy that I have ever seen. I have to say, uh, does look, not to be stereotypical, but he looks pretty Jewish. <laughs> Uh, so this, I think, is probably the main point that Osman began with in his search to prove Joseph as Yuya in history, is that they found this mummy, and ever since 1905, people have been trying to figure out why Yuya, the father of the Egyptian Queen T, does not look ethnically Egyptian. So I guess this is Osman's theory as to why he does not look Egyptian, but in fact looks like a person of Semitic heritage. Because he's Joseph. Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It was red and yellow and orange and pink and purple and blue and asher and gray and... I'm not going to sing the entire song. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, the, uh, by the way, that's a musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber. So... I took my coat of many colors. I don't know if that's the words or not, but it's something like that. I did the show once. It was a long time ago. Uh, yeah. I played one of um, Jacob's wives. Joseph's father, Jacob, had many wives. And I played one of his wives, and to signify that I was a housewife, I wore a hat with a cooking pot on top of my head. Yep. So that happened, and it was fun. But back to the story at hand, so it is basically this description of the Yuya mummy that has inspired people now to believe that he is Joseph. So this is a whole thing, yeah. And there, you know, the author provides a bunch of evidence as other evidence to support his theory. I think a lot of it is kind of misleading. Like, he'll say, I have a theory about Joseph's name, and he kind of explains it, or I have a theory about Joseph's wife's heritage and her father Potiphar and all this, and he'll explain it, and then he'll act for the next section like what he just theorized is the fact, and that's what he's going off of? I don't know. But anyway, there's other things. He talks about the is uh, evidence of Israelites uh, living in the land of Goshen, which is in the northeastern part of the uh, Nile Delta. And um, there is pretty good evidence that the people living in Goshen at the time who were building the cities of Python and Ramses were of some sort of Semitic origin. And so that's good evidence as well that during this time, at the start of the 19th dynasty, when Moses is born, he's supposed to be born in close proximity to the pharaoh and the royal family. And now before this point in history, the capital had been down further the Nile, down by Thebes. And it wasn't until the start of the 19th dynasty that Hormheb had really been residing in Avaris, north in the northeastern delta, which is where the Hyksos had been originally. So if Moses is going to be born in the land of Goshen, which is where the Israelites were, and he was going to be nearby the pharaoh and the royal family, this is basically the only point in history where it would make sense 
for that to happen if he was really in Goshen, because then he would have been by the royal family who had just relocated to that area. If it was not Ramses II, but if it was the pharaoh Horemheb or Ramses I. And so the author of the book uh, theorizes that the Old Testament oppressor king, who was the one who had basically enslaved the Israelites at this point, is none other than Horemheb, who had ruled for almost 30 years, and during that period, him and his son Seti had, had been in the Delta region, building these cities, Py, uh, Python and Pyramses, and they were basically using heavy labor that we think might have been uh, Semitic peoples. And so it, I guess it makes sense if he's the oppressor king. And then Osmond says in the Old Testament, the oppressor king dies. And it's when this happens and the new king takes over that Moses says, let my people go. And that then the new king says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And then... Moses sends the plagues, and then the fifth year was plague, and the second year was plague, and the fourth year was plague. <laughs> yeah, so he sends the plagues, and then he splits the Red Sea, and then the second pharaoh is killed uh, as the Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. And so he says the second king, who by the Old Testament estimations only reigns for about two years, must be Ramses I, who in real life only reigned for two years before his death. So this is his theory of the new timeline of the Old Testament story of Joseph and the Exodus, uh, with star players including Yuya, Tuya, their daughter Queen T, her husband Amenhotep III, their crazy son Akhenaten, his unfortunate soul of a son, King Tutankhamun, and uh, his successors, I, Hormheb, and Ramses I. Oh yeah, he also has this interesting theory that briefly after King Tut dies, there is a two-year period where his advisor, I, becomes the pharaoh, and Osman thinks that I was actually the son of Yuya. In the Bible, apparently it says that Joseph had two sons as well, and apparently Yuya has two sons, and the name of one of them may have actually been pronounced I. I shares the same title as Yuya, he's the vizier, and so it would make sense, I guess, if his father was the vizier, that his son I would rise up in the ranks to become the next vizier. So, he was the pharaoh's advisor, and then he became the king. And I think Osman also says the mummy of I, or the body, or something like that, does resemble Yuya more than he resembles the Egyptian kings and pharaohs and stuff, or viziers and stuff. So, that's another theory. Was I, in fact, Joseph's son, who in the Old Testament, apparently, uh, they both were very important, and they came to be blessed and prosperous people. So so that is Osman's crackpot theory of Joseph, aka Yuya, fathering a line of Egyptian pharaohs. Oh yeah, and he also says, you know how um, Akhenaten and, and uh, Semenkekare, if that's a real person, 
and Tutankhamun were sort of shunned by Egyptian society afterwards, and their stuff was all destroyed, and their names were scratched off of monuments and stuff, and they think that maybe Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and Tutankhamun were all or assassinated. He also says that that was possibly uh, also because they were pharaohs of Semitic or ethnic background, because Yuya was their father and or great grandfather and father. So, so that's another theory. And then to really wrap things up, we've got two final points that really you know bring things home, like shebang. So Osman goes back to the timeline and he looks at everything he's just said and he goes, okay. So if we place the arrival of Joseph in Egypt at this time when we find Yuya and the reign of uh, Amenhotep III. And then we go to where we see the Exodus at the end of Horemheb's reign and the beginning of the reign of Ramses I. We don't have that period of 430 years that people think the Bible is talking about. What we do have is a period of four generations. Because biblical interpretation is basically in the hands of the reader, Osman says a lot of people have interpreted this wrong. The authors aren't talking about 430 years, they're, they're talking about four generations, the lifespan of four generations. And if you think about the four generations of basically kings in between Amenhotep III and Hormheb and, and uh, Ramses, you get a period of about four generations, which would make the timeline for this Old Testament story between the arrival of Joseph and the Exodus completely perfect with what he has laid out of, of Yuya's life leading to the exodus and the death of Ramses I as the last exodus king. Boom! All right, so there's your first big point. And the second big point is, so obviously we went over how the reign of Akhenaten, Smenkhakari, Nefertiti, whatever, and Tutankhamun is, is, you know, frowned upon by the rest of Egypt and, you know, kind of politely erased from history. So, this is because, one, yeah, he thinks it may be because they were Semitic in origin, but also mainly, as far as the Egyptians are concerned, because Akhenaten shows up and he's like, dude, let's get rid of all the rest of these gods. We don't need to be polytheists. Let's worship one god. Which technically makes him, yeah, you guessed it, a monotheist. In fact, He's the first major monotheist in history. And where do they think that Akhenaten just randomly came up with this idea to be a monotheist from? Well, Osman says, maybe it was from his Semitic ancestors. His grandfather, Yuya, we're supposed to believe, is one of the early, the Jewish faith uh, coming out of Canaan. So, yeah, maybe perhaps... The little birdie whispering in Akhenaten's ear saying, uh, we don't need all the rest of these gods. Let's just worship the one god. Maybe that might have been his grandfather, Yuya. We don't know, but that is Osman's big world-blasting theory at the end of the book. And that monotheism was passed down. Tut wasn't a really big fan of it. In fact, Tut's first name when he was born was Tutankhamun as in Aten, who was the sun god of Akhenaten's. And Tut didn't really like that, because after Akhenaten died, or was murdered, or whatever, 
Uh, everyone was pretty pissed off at him. So he actually changed his name from Turan Katen to Turan Ta... Whoa, whoa, whoa. What am I saying? From Turan Katen with a T to Turan Kamen with an M because Amen was a very old traditional god of Egypt that was much more popular at the time than the Aten sun god. So there you have it, folks. The big, bad, crazy theories of one Mr. Osman. So, just interesting stuff. If any of you guys are interested, there's other people who have been writing about this stuff, and there's other theories as well. If you can still find it, I think you can probably find it online somewhere. I remember a couple years ago, there was a TV special on either Discovery or History or something like that, made by the filmmaker James Cameron of Titanic and the naked archaeologist himself, Simka Yakovovich. And the entire special was about their theory that the Exodus story actually happened around 1550 BC with the reign of King Amos I, who was the first king of the 18th dynasty. And they put forward a bunch of evidence which they believed pointed to, to the reign of Amos coinciding with the plague. Uh, because there was a volcanic eruption at the island of Santorini, Greece, which would have produced some of the side effects uh, similar to what is mentioned in the Bible. It also coincides with the exodus, uh, with the expulsion of the Hyksos, uh, Asiatic peoples from Egypt. If, you know, 1550, there was a large bunch of Semitic Asiatic people expelled from Egypt and uh, at the end of the Exodus there is a large bunch of Semitic Asiatic people expelled from Egypt. So obviously they went with that coincidence and ran with it. <laughs> but it was an interesting special. Uh, they also say there's evidence in Greece, I think, of it, you know, these stelae or uh, inscriptions that actually show the parting of the Red Sea. <laughs> or the Reed Sea, as um, I think we know now is probably the most likely candidate for the Red Sea, apparently, that Moses was crossing, and the drowning of the Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the Red Sea, with Moses and his staff standing in the middle of it. So that was, that was an interesting special. Maybe you should check it out if you're interested. Again, that's uh, James Cameron and Simka Yakovovich's special. I think it's called something like Decoding the Exodus, something like that. So anyway, you know, all of these uh, theories on the biblical archaeology of Egypt and its connection to the Old Testament are all very interesting. And so that's one of the random things about Egypt I thought I would bring up today because maybe you find it interesting. I don't know. I do. So I thought I'd tell you about it. And maybe I'll do another Egypt episode sometime in the future where we talk about some uh, more traditional... <laughs> parts of Egyptian archaeology. Um, I'm not sure if everybody here is really into the, um, into this biblical stuff, but I think it's interesting, so. And so that's about it for us today, folks. We're gonna hit the road and, uh, shuffle off to Bedfordshire. But, uh, tune in. I think in a week or two I'm gonna have another episode out because, if you haven't noticed, we are coming upon the first three days of July, which happened to be the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. That's right, folks. 
all of you Civil War buffs out there, I'm sure will know that we are coming upon a big event in Civil War commemoration history, and it's going to be a pretty exciting event for that gorgeous little town of Gettysburg in southern Pennsylvania, with which I am very familiar because I've been there like a dozen times. So I think I'm going to do a Civil War episode, which is going to be super exciting because I have like weird, random personal connections to the Civil War, um, some interesting stories, and some great uh, insight into the life of Civil War soldiers that comes to me from different people in my life uh, and our heritage. So I think that's going to be very interesting to share with you guys. And so stay tuned for that and definitely check out this blog episode. Uh, you can download the rest of my episodes on Stitcher or iTunes. And uh, yeah, keep tuned for more Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty in the near future. And I would also like to give a shout out to my new friends at the Anomaly Podcast. I think it's safe to say as someone who has devoted copious amounts of time trying to learn ancient Greek and hieroglyphs, that I too am an anomaly. And for those listeners interested in all things geek, you can check out the Anomaly Podcast at anomalypodcast.com and on iTunes. But anyway, it's been a great community and uh, I'll make sure to keep a part of it because geeky girls rock! So that's it for this podcast, ladies and gents. Um, We'll talk to you soon and make sure to keep posted for the Civil War episode coming up next. I think this one may be called something like, "Mm, holy crackpot theory, Batman. How about that one? So this is McNiven signing out for me and my girls, Ankus and Pepe and Asshotep. May your ma'at always stay in order and your ankh be eternally awesome. McNiven out. of the children of Israel with Simeon and Levi the next in line Naphtali and Issachar with Asher and Dan Zebulun and Gad took the total to nine Jacob Jacob and sons Benjamin and Judah which leaves only one Jacob Jacob and sons Joseph Jacob's favorite son